Well, hey, First Church, so glad you guys are here. And we have family this morning meeting out at Stone Canyon, as well as others who will join us online. So if you would, put your hands together. Welcome them into our time of study here today. Well, I don't know about your family, but my family loves to play board games. And one of my son's favorite games, Mousetrap. He likes this game because he wins all the time. I hate this game because I never win. In fact, I've never won at this game ever. And he and I are both competitive, so I dread every time he brings out Mousetrap. But he loves it. Another game that we like to play is Monopoly. Anybody in the room like to play Monopoly? Okay, good number of you. Except in our family, we don't play Monopoly. We play UKopoly, which is so much better. By the way, you got to throw this in. Kentucky beat Kansas last night. So uh, sorry to Nathan, our um, children's minister. But still, UK won last night. Big win. Go Cats. I'm excited about that. Uh, you guys don't seem near as excited as I am, but that's all right. You guys will come along eventually. But another game that my family really enjoys to play, and we just started playing this over Christmas because my brother got it for us for Christmas. It's the game pie face. Anybody ever play this? It's a lot of fun and you know it can be kind of stressful because basically how this game works is you have a shot of getting a pie in the face as you play and so basically what happens is there's this little contraption right here there's a spinner that goes along with it you sit in a circle put your if it's your turn you put your head and your face into the little slot here and then you spin the spinner and whatever number you land on you then have to turn this little wheel however many times you land on so if you like spin a three then you turn it three times and you put whipped cream here on this little hand and you turn it one two three okay nothing happened so if that was my turn I'm safe so then you go on to the next person around the table and they spin the little spinner if they get a five let's say you spin you then turn it again five times one two three four ah and so if that was your turn you would have got a pie in the face and the way this little contraption works is you know tension and pressure builds up in here until eventually the catapult just launches a pie into your face and it's so much fun that I thought we needed to try it out as a church this morning. What do you guys think? Should we try it out? All right. I've already talked to somebody about coming up here and volunteering. Uh, Josh Beard, are you out there somewhere? Josh, if you would come on up to the stage. Yeah, there he is. Okay, he's coming. Let's give Josh a round of applause as he comes to the stage. And we're going to have a little bit of fun because I want Josh to try this out for us. If you'll have a seat there. You've played this before, right? Okay, all right, so let's see if uh, he gets a pie in the face, and I'm going to let him, or I guess just whipped cream in the face, not really a pie, I'm going to let him spin the wheel, and he, oh, a two, only a two, so we'll see. Let's put a little whipped cream on here. Is that good enough? I think we need some more, a little bit more. Uh, oh, whoa, okay, here we go. How about, is that good enough? Okay, we'll put a little bit more on there. There, I don't want to be too much and weigh it down. So let's see if he gets some whipped cream in the face. Let's count it together. One, okay. Two, oh, he didn't do it. Man, didn't happen. You know, let's spin it again. What do you say? You want to spin it again? All right, let's go. Spin it another time, Josh. We get a four this time. He's going to get it this time. I can feel it. Here we go. One, he's scared. Can he tell? <laughs> Look at this. Two. Three, there it is. All right, that's awesome. Okay, 
Got him right in the nose. Well, Josh, here's you a towel to clean up. And for being such a good sport, I've got you a gift card to Chick-fil-A. Now, you can't use it today because they're closed, but uh, you could use it this week sometime. So thanks, buddy, for helping us out. Appreciate that. Let's give him another round of applause. Now, that game is fun because of the tension that builds up over time. That's how this contraption works. Tension, stress builds up each time that you turn that little wheel to eventually, it just explodes and it gets you. But it's also fun because of the tension and stress and pressure that's built up among the players because you're just waiting to see if you're going to get some whipped cream in the face or not. And it starts getting a little pressure. I'm starting to get a little, you start to get a little anxious and nervous as time passes each time that you turn that little wheel. And you know, when it comes to a game like this, pressure, stress, tension, it can be fun. It can lead to a lot of fun. But not so much in life. Pressure and stress, tension in life, well, it can cause us to do some things that we wouldn't normally do. It can cause us to say some things we wouldn't normally say, make some choices that we wouldn't normally make. And I don't know if that's the case for you, but that's been the case for me throughout my life. And I dare say most of us could agree that during moments of tension and pressure, we're prone to make decisions we later regret. And I think that's definitely the case for the Israelites as we continue to learn about their journey to freedom in the book of Exodus. We've been in this series for the past few weeks entitled Set Free. And we're looking at the period of history in the Old Testament when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, but God decides to set them free. He sees their misery in Egypt and he wants them to experience freedom. So God sends this guy named Moses to lead the people out of their slavery. And we know that after God sends 10 plagues upon Egypt, eventually Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, relents and he lets the people go. And once they make it to the Red Sea, we talked about this last week, Pharaoh changes his mind and he realizes that he's lost his labor force and he doesn't want to have to build this nation by himself. So he goes after the Israelites to recapture them, to bring them back to slavery. And last week we talked about how God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could go across on dry ground. And then when the Egyptian army followed after them, God closed the Red Sea on them and the Israelites never had to worry about the Egyptians again. And from that point on, God continued to lead the Israelites. He continued to guide them. He supernaturally, miraculously provided for them by giving them food and water. He took care of them. And so as we continue on in this Exodus narrative, we come to Exodus chapter 20. And at this point in their history, they've been out of Egypt now for three months and they're camped out around a mountain, a mountain called Sinai. And on Sinai, God manifests himself in a way like he never had before. God physically descends. His presence physically descends upon this mountain and the people are able to experience him in a very real way. The Bible says that there was smoke coming down off the mountain as God's presence descended, that there was uh, sounds of thunder and flashes of lightning, there were clouds all around this mountain. In fact, God would audibly speak to the people from the mountain. How cool would that have been? In fact, the Bible says that the earth would shake when God would speak and it would terrify the people. It was such an awesome moment for them to behold that the people shouted out to Moses and said, don't let God speak to us anymore. If God wants to speak, let him just speak to you, but we don't want to hear him anymore because he scares us to death every time he speaks. That's how awesome that moment truly was. And even though the Israelites were terrified to hear God's voice in an audible way, 
I think it would have been a cool thing to experience. I think it would have been just awesome to have seen God's presence like that on the mountain. So that's where we are in Exodus chapter 20. And basically, we, would, we might think that this would be a great place to end this story of rescue, this narrative of freedom. Because the Israelites were enslaved, but now God has rescued them through plagues and miraculous things. God has rescued his people. They crossed the Red Sea. Now they're being led by God. God's providing for them for three months now. They've been out of slavery and they're camped out by this mountain, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And God is physically present with them. Yes, the history of the Israelites continues beyond this, but this story of freedom, this story of rescue, well, we think this would be a, we might think this would be a good place to end it, but what we quickly find out is that this journey to freedom is far from over because it's one thing to be set free, but it's a whole other thing to live free. And the Israelites hadn't realized this yet, and that's why God does what he does next. See, while Moses is with God up on the mountain, God gives Moses some instructions. He gives him the foundation for the, for the law, the law that is supposed to be passed down to the Israelite people, and we normally refer to these instructions as the Ten Commandments. You've probably heard of the Ten Commandments before. You've seen them posted somewhere on a wall or whatever. The Ten Commandments are pretty well known in our culture today, but basically God says, I want to give my people some house rules to live by, and here they are. This is what God says. First of all, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, don't worship anything else but me. Don't put anything else before me or above me. Second, you shall not worship idols. In other words, don't make a graven image. Don't make a little statue and call it your God and then worship it. You're only to worship me. Third, you shall not misuse my name. You will not abuse my name. You won't use my name as a cuss word. You won't throw it around um, in a disrespectful way. Do not misuse my name. Number four, you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And these first four commands all talk about how we are to relate to God. But then God gives six more commands that basically illustrate how we are to relate to one another. So he goes on to say, number five, you are to honor your father and mother. And number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not lie. And number 10, you shall not covet. Now, if you've grown up in church, you've heard of the Ten Commandments before. Probably if you've grown up in this culture, you've heard of the Ten Commandments before, and you may even have them memorized. So for us to hear these Ten Commandments, especially at this point in the history of God's people, it's probably not a big shock. But if you've never been exposed to this story before, this historical narrative before, and this is the first time you're hearing it, you might think that the Ten Commandments seem a little out of place. Because what's been our theme up until this point? Our theme in the story of the Exodus has been freedom. God wanted to set his people free. In fact, the first 19 chapters of Exodus can be summarized in this statement. God worked in supernatural ways to rescue his people and set them free from bondage. That's what we've seen play out. So finally, God's people are free. Egypt is behind them. They've been free from slavery for three months now. And what does God do? He gives them a bunch of rules to live by. I mean, what's going on here? Is this a divine game of bait and switch? It seems like God just traded out one form of bondage for another. They're just getting used to this newfound freedom, and what does God do? Give them a bunch of rules. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do this. On the surface, 
this seems a little odd. It seems not to fit with our idea of freedom, especially because some of these rules seem a little bit oppressive, a little bit strict, even harsh and limiting. So what's going on here? See, I'm convinced that the giving of the Ten Commandments is one of the most misunderstood passages in the Old Testament, and because it's been misunderstood, it's led to a deep misunderstanding of who God is. And the reason why it's so misunderstood is because people tend to focus on the what rather than the why behind the Ten Commandments. See, one principle we need to understand when it comes to studying God's Word is this. When it comes to God's Word, His teachings, His instructions, when it comes to God's Word, it's important to not just understand what God says, but also why He said it. In other words, it's not just that we want to recognize God's voice when He speaks, but we want to understand His character as He speaks. Because honestly, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, for example, the what isn't that hard to understand. I mean, what God says is pretty straightforward, it's pretty plain, we can all grasp it, we can all understand it. I mean, most of us probably have the Ten Commandments memorized, and if you don't, you could probably memorize them over lunch today if you really wanted to. The what isn't that hard to understand, but it's the why that's sometimes misunderstood. And because the why gets misunderstood, God gets misunderstood. I'm convinced that's why so many people, when they first think of God, the image that comes to mind isn't the image of freedom, but it's the image of bondage to rules and regulations. I'm afraid that's why so many people want nothing to do with God, because who wants to follow a God who just wants to limit you? Who wants to give their life to a God who just wants to oppress you with rules and regulations? And maybe that's how you picture God right now. Maybe you're someone who comes to church on a regular basis, but you're here because a friend wants you to be here or a spouse wants you to be here or a parent or a child wants you to be here and you're here out of obligation and church is fine. You really don't have anything against the church, but you've never really bought in to following Jesus. You've never really bought in to his mission because you really, are, you really don't want to live a life of bondage. You're not looking to live a life of bondage. And if that's you, I just want you to know something today. You're not alone. I'm not looking to live a life of bondage either. And that's not the type of life that God wants you to live. And I think that's why it's so important that we stop at this moment to understand the why behind the what when it comes to God's instructions. Because here's the key. God's instructions were not meant to enslave people, but to make people aware of the bondage they're already living in. Let me say that again. God's instructions were not meant to enslave people. They weren't meant to enslave us, but to make us aware of the bondage we were already living in. And that statement may sound a little confusing, but I think it will make more sense when you replace the word bondage with sin. Because that's what sin does. Sin enslaves us. It takes our hearts, our minds, our souls, and it puts them in chains. That's why Jesus teaches in John 8, verse 34, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a what? A slave to sin. Let me ask, does your life ever feel heavy? You ever feel weighed down? Well, it's hard to live freely when you constantly are chained by something. 
God's commands are meant to awaken us to the things in this life that in the moment seem appealing and seem fun and seem exciting, may even seem comforting, but that ultimately lead to slavery, ultimately tie us down, ultimately chain us and keep us from living out the purpose for which we were created that eventually lead to bondage. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, verse 7, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I wouldn't even know what sin was unless God's law told me about it. And look what he goes on to say. He gives an example here. He says, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Let me illustrate it like this. Uh, A few months ago, a couple months ago, we had a dusting of snow one morning. You guys will probably recall that. And my kids were so excited when they looked out the window that morning and saw snow on the ground. It was more than a dusting. I mean, it was enough to cover the grass. And my kids were pumped because we're used to having snow back in Kentucky. But we were told when we moved here, Oklahoma doesn't get a lot of snow. So when they saw snow on the ground, they were ready to go out and play in it. They were so excited that my son Alex unlocked the back door and was ready to run out before we even knew what he was doing. And I had to grab him and stop him because he was still in the clothes that he had slept in, you know, that night. And so he was wearing a t-shirt and shorts and was barefoot. He was going to run outside in the snow. And so I grabbed him like, you know, buddy, you can go out and play in it, but not yet. We got to get you dressed for the snow. We got to get you ready to go out and play in the snow. And so we immediately uh, went and got him a pair of sweatpants and a sweatshirt and a jacket to wear. Got him some socks to put on, some shoes to put on. He wasn't going to go out there barefoot. We got him a hat to wear. We got him one of these hats. And let me just ask, what do you guys call this? A beanie, see, that's crazy. Where we're from, we call this a toboggan. Now, I know what you all say. A toboggan is a sled. I know, I can already hear it. But beanie, that's just, I don't know what a beanie is, but it's not this. Okay, but we're trying to learn your guys' language. Anyway, but, so we got a beanie, toboggan, whatever you want to call it. And we put that on his head. But if you've ever tried to dress a five-year-old with all that stuff, you know it takes a while. It's not easy, especially when they want to do something else, especially when they want to go outside and play. And so he was getting more and more frustrated at us because he wanted to go outside and play. And finally, he looked at me and he said, Daddy, you're keeping me from having fun. And let me ask, was I really keeping Alex from having fun? No, I wanted him to have the best experience he could, but he wasn't going to have it if he ran out barefoot and in shorts and a T-shirt. One, he would not have lasted that long, and if he would have gone out like that and played for any amount of time, he would have got sick in the next few days he would not be able to play at all. What I wanted him to do is have the most fun that he possibly could outside. You know, I think that's a great illustration of God's instructions, of God's law. Believe it or not, God wants us to enjoy this life. Contrary to popular belief, God didn't create this life for us to be miserable. He created this life for us to enjoy it. And the reason why he's given us parameters and guidelines to go by in life is so that we can enjoy it. Because he knows that if we just run out and do whatever feels good to us, eventually we're going to get trapped, caught up in something that's going to enslave us. It's going to chain us down. It's going to hold us back. And we won't be able to live life to the fullest. The reason why God has given us instructions is not to limit us, but it's so that we can actually live free and avoid those things that will enslave us. See, contrary to what some people think, God doesn't give us instructions to enslave us, but to keep us out of slavery. And that's what we end up seeing happen here in this passage or here in the story of the Exodus. And that's what the Israelites needed to know. Because even though they'd been set free, they'd been set free from their bondage in Egypt, they didn't yet know how to live free. 
So back to our story, back to the Exodus narrative. God gives Moses the 10 commandments, but God hasn't written them down yet. So he calls Moses back up on the mountain to spend some more time with him. He's gonna give Moses some more instructions and God is going to write the 10 commandments down on tablets of stone with his own finger, with God's own finger. How cool would that, would, how cool would that have been? So Moses goes back up on the mountain, but he knows that the Israelites need a babysitter. And so he leaves Aaron, his brother, in charge of the people. And Aaron's a godly man. He's been with Moses through this whole journey. So Aaron's left in charge the bottom of the mountain. Moses is up on the mountain with God and Moses up there for a week and then a week turns into two weeks and then two weeks into three weeks and three weeks into four weeks and Moses is up there with God for 40 days and over time the people start to get a little impatient they start to worry they become concerned tension starts to grow and they start to ask one another, what's happened? What's going on? What's taking Moses so long? Is God still with us? Is God still listening to us? What's happening? Tension grows and it grows. People start to argue and say, well, really, maybe God isn't with us anymore. Or maybe Moses, something's happened to him. Maybe he's run off and he's abandoned us. And tension grows and grows. It's building up. And then eventually they put pressure on Aaron. And Aaron ends up doing something that he probably would not have done if there wasn't pressure on him. But let's read in Exodus 32, if you want to jump over there, verse 1. Let's see what Aaron ends up doing as the people put pressure on him. Chapter 32, verse 1. You can follow on your Bible or on your Bible app. If you have our First Church app, you can follow along there as well in the notes. And the scripture says this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain... They gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf fashioning it with a tool then they said these are your gods O Israel who brought you up out of Egypt so what does Aaron do under pressure he creates an idol for the people to worship and the people say this here is our God who brought us out of Egypt and then if you were to go on and read in Exodus chapter 32 what you will discover is the people celebrate him and they partied. They were so excited that they had a God again. They had made this God in their own image. And the Bible says that they began to drink and feast and dance. They partied like it was 1990 or 446 BC. I mean, they partied it up. And even though they're having this great celebration, and they're saying, hey, we have a God again, did they really believe that this God that they had made in their own image was going to protect them, was going to guide them, direct them, was going to provide for them? Of course not. They had created this God in their own image. They had made it up. What they were worshiping, what they were following was a lie. But in a moment of tension, in a moment of pressure, in a moment of stress, they made a choice that they probably wouldn't have made otherwise. And so God says to Moses up on the mountain, Houston, we have a problem, or Sinai, we have a problem. Because the people who I just rescued, the people who I just set free, they've already forgotten me. And they're back in slavery again. Oh, it's not slavery to the Egyptians, but it's slavery, all right, just a different form. And my question to you today is, how does something like that happen? 
Remember what I said earlier. During moments of tension and pressure, we're prone to make decisions we later regret. And under pressure, the Israelites revert back to slavery. In Psalm 106, verse 20, it says, they traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. Let me ask you, it may not be a statue of a grass-eating bull, but do we ever do the same? Do we ever trade the freedom that God wants to give us for cheap imitations of God that lead to slavery? Do we ever trade the life that God wants us to live for a much lesser life offered to us by this world? I'm afraid it happens more than we care to admit. And that's why the Israelites needed God's instructions, and that's why we need them today as well. God doesn't give us instructions to enslave us, but to keep us out of slavery. Because the way that God's instructions work are kind of like a mirror. If you have a mirror in your home or in your bathroom, what do mirrors do? They allow you to see reality. So you look at yourself in the mirror and you see if your hair's messed up or you see your love handles or you see if there's any changes that uh, need to be made in your appearance. But mirrors tell the truth. And sometimes people avoid mirrors altogether because they don't want to know the truth. They don't want to see reality. But that's what mirrors do. It's the same thing that a bathroom, a set of bathroom scales do. When you step on a set of bathroom scales, you get the truth, right? And some people avoid stepping on scales altogether because they don't want to know the truth. They don't want to know reality. But Jesus teaches in John 8, verse 31, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. See, God's instructions show us the truth so that we can make the changes in our lives that we need to make and we can stay out of slavery. God's commands aren't meant to enslave us, but to keep us out of slavery. And how exactly do they do that? Well, first of all, God's commands reveal our need for a savior. See, it's not until we realize how deep, how ugly, how nasty sin is that we realize our need for a savior, that we realize our need for rescue. Let me just do a quick little test with you. I want to run back through the Ten Commandments that we just looked at a second ago, and I want you to privately, to yourself, keep track of how many of these commandments you have never broken, how many of these commandments you have always kept. So don't say it out loud. I just want you to privately, to yourself, keep track of the commandments you've always kept your entire life, you've never broken, okay? So let's see how well we do. So here's the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. If you have never placed anything before or above God ever at any time in your life, mark that down as a commandment you've always kept, okay? Number two, you shall not worship idols. Now, I understand that really anything can be turned into an idol. You can turn anything in life into an idol that you worship. But for the sake of our discussion, let's define idol as just a graven image, just a statue or something like that that you might bow down and physically worship. So if you've never bowed down and worshiped a statue or a graven image, count that as one commandment you've kept. Aren't you glad that that one's in there? Okay, number three. You shall not misuse my name. If you've never misused God's name at all, you've never used God's name as a curse word, you've never just thrown it around without thinking, uh, you've never said, oh my God, or you've never texted OMG, if you have never misused God's name at all, then count that as one you've always kept. 
Okay, number four, you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it only. If every single week of your life you have set aside the proper time to rest and to acknowledge God and worship Him, and you've done that consistently every single week, all of your life, count that as a commandment you've always kept. Number five, honor your father and mother. When you were a kid, if you never disobeyed your parents, you ever talked back to your parents, you ever disrespected them in any way, never rebelled against them, if you have always honored your father and mother, count that as a command you've always kept. Some of you parents are poking your teenagers. I can see, okay. The next one, uh, you shall not murder. Now, I understand that in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that if you harbor hatred in your heart towards another person, then that's the same as committing murder in your heart. But we're not even going to count it like that, okay? Uh, I know Jesus says that, but again, for the sake of our test here, let's just limit this to physical murder, the physical act of murder. So if you've never physically murdered anybody, count that as one you've always kept. Uh, number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Now again, Jesus says in the New Testament that if you lust after someone else, that's the same as committing adultery in your heart, and that's true, but for the sake of our test, let's just limit this to the physical act of adultery. So if you've ever physically committed adultery, or maybe if you've had any type of premarital sexual relations or anything like that, then you can't count that one, but if you haven't, count it, okay? Number eight, you shall not steal. If you have never taken a pin from work, if you've never taken a towel from a hotel, if you've never cheated a little bit on your taxes, or you've never tried to cut corners in some way, if you have never stolen anything in your life ever, count that as one that you've always kept. Number nine, you shall not lie. You've never told a little white lie or a fib. Your wife, when she asks you how she looks and you said, oh, you look great and you know it's not true. I mean, if you've never done anything like that, you've never told a lie of any sort, stretched the truth, deceived anybody in any way, count that as one you've always kept. And then number 10, you shall not covet. If you have never wanted something that someone else has, you've ever been jealous of somebody else, envious of what someone else has, then count that as one you've always kept. Okay, let's see how we did. Let's see how good we are as a church. Are you ready? How many of you put your hands up real high? How many of you have kept all 10 of the Ten Commandments? Put your hands up because we want to worship you in this moment. If you've kept all 10 of the Ten Commandments, okay, nobody? How about nine? Anybody kept nine of the Ten Commandments? Put your hand up. Eight? Anybody kept eight? Seven? Six? Man, this is an evil and wicked church. No, not really. That's kind of the point. Honestly, the way that we just define them, I would say that maybe I've always kept three of them. One of them, do not murder. The other two are none of your business. But um, we've all broke the Ten Commandments, right? And that's kind of the point. Because God didn't give us commands to eradicate sin. He knows that's impossible. God gave his commands to expose our sin so we can recognize our sin. And when our sin is exposed, then we realize the need for a Savior. Because, see, we can't eradicate sin, but Jesus can. That's why Paul says in Romans 3, verses 20 through 24, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. None of us have ever kept God's law perfectly. So don't try to act like you have. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. 
See, God's law, it makes us aware of our sin so that we can seek a savior. Because on our own, we cannot stand justified before God. But Jesus came and died in our place. He paid the penalty of our sins so that we would have to suffer the consequences of sin. So that now we can stand before God totally justified. And so when we do look in our spiritual mirrors, we don't see our sinful selves anymore, but we're able to see Jesus, see his righteousness, and then we can stand before God in confidence. See, God's commands reveal our need for a Savior. And that's why Jesus came. Second, how do God's commands keep us out of slavery? Well, God's commands help us appreciate the freedom that God's given us. When we realize how sinful we are, we realize what we really deserve. Guys, I just want to be transparent with you. On my best day, do you know what I deserve? Hell. On my best day, I deserve hell. But Jesus has set me free from that. And when you realize what you deserve, and then you realize what you've been given, you appreciate that freedom every single day. And you don't take it for granted. We posed the question this week on our church social media accounts, and I had several conversations with people where I asked this same question. The question was this, where would you be today if it wasn't for Jesus? Here are some of the responses I got. I would be angry, lost, searching for my purpose. Someone else said I'd be divorced. Someone else said I'd still be jumping from one bed to another trying to find love. Someone else said I would be hated by my family. Someone else said I'd be strung out. Someone else said I'd be in prison. Guys, I know where I would be today if it wasn't for Jesus. I know that. And when I think about that, it makes me so grateful for the freedom that God has given me in his son. And I don't want to take that freedom for granted ever because I know I don't deserve the life that God has given me. I know I don't deserve the status that God has given me before him. See, for me, God's commands don't enslave me. No, God's commands keep me from being enslaved. That's why I follow his commands. His commands are not a burden to me. His commands set me free. And that's why John says in 1 John 5, verses 3 through 4, loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And then last, how do God's commands keep us out of slavery? God's commands remind us that Jesus is enough. See, in Exodus, God sets the Israelites free, but they didn't know how to live free. So in a moment of tension and pressure, what do they do? They revert back to slavery. And honestly, we do the same thing when we forget that Jesus is enough. You see, freedom is finding peace in the promise that Jesus is enough, that we don't need anything else but him, that in order to find true meaning and purpose and value in life, we need to seek him and have a healthy relationship with him. And some of you right now, you are experiencing freedom because you surrendered your life to him a long time ago. Some of you right now, because you came to the point in your life that you realized, I can't live this life on my own. I can't justify myself before God on my own. I'm tired of trying to win the acceptance of people. I'm, try, I'm tired of trying to prove myself to everybody else. I'm tired of trying to prove myself to myself. I'm tired of trying to earn my way to God. And so you finally surrender to God. And so right now, 
you're experiencing the freedom that Jesus offers. And it's freedom from shame, from guilt, from regret. It's freedom from fear. The fear of failure, the fear of isolation, the fear of not measuring up, the fear of insecurity. It's freedom from the fear of sickness and poor health and growing old and death. It's freedom from trying to be good enough, righteous enough, holy enough, perfect enough, influential enough, powerful enough, rich enough, successful enough, popular enough. And it's finding peace in the fact that Jesus is enough. And you know that he's all you need. Some of you right now are experiencing that freedom. And the rest of you could. You could if you would only embrace Jesus and realize he's enough. So let me ask as we close today, are you living free? Because there's a huge difference between Jesus coming to set us free and actually living in his freedom. Remember what Psalm 106 verse 20 says. It says they traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. What are you trading today for the freedom that God wants to offer you? What are you trading today for the life that Jesus died so you could live? What enslaves you? What's keeping you from living out your God-given purpose? What's holding you in bondage? What's chaining you down? Whatever it is, whatever it is, Jesus wants to set you free. And so we're gonna end the service today with a time of worship. We're gonna sing what has become one of my favorite worship songs in the past couple years. It's called No Longer Slaves. And as we do, as our congregation sings together, worships together, we're gonna have some volunteers, some staff members down front. And if you need prayer today, we want you to come down front and seek out one of these volunteers to pray with you. If there's anything today that is holding you captive, anything today that's holding you hostage in life, we want to pray for your freedom today because our God is a God of freedom. So whatever it is, it doesn't matter. We invite you, we encourage you to come down front. Don't feel ashamed because we've all been there before. And so we want to pray with you today so that you can start the path to freedom that God is offering you. So as we stand here in just a second and sing as a church family, as we worship together, if you need freedom from anything today, come forward to the front, seek prayer, and we will help you pray for your freedom. And today can be the start of a new day for you as you start the path of freedom that Jesus wants to give you. So as we uh, have some time of worship, if you would stand with me, the band's gonna come back out on stage, I'm gonna pray, then let's worship together Come forward if you need somebody to pray with you for any reason whatsoever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to open up your word. Father, to be encouraged by it and to be reminded that your commands are not burdensome, that they're not meant to enslave us, but they're to keep us from slavery in this world. And so, Father, right now, I know that in this group of people, there is someone, probably multiple someones, Father, who need to be set free from something in life. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's pain from the past. Maybe it's guilt. 
Maybe it's lust, maybe it's pride, maybe it's some other temptation. Father, I don't know what it is, but you do. And I guarantee there are individuals right now in this room who need to start the path of freedom that your son provides. So Father, I pray for those individuals right now and I pray that as we sing this song of worship, they will come forward and that we can pray for them to help them on this journey to freedom. It's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen.